You know, it's 5 to 11, or 5 to 12. I wish it were 5 to 11. That'd be better. Uh, 5 to 12, that means we don't have a lot of time. So we're going to do a couple of things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you a little bit about this passage. Uh, to start out with, I just need you to know something. We call worship what the praise team did, and I agree with that. But worship is when we give an offering. And worship is, frankly, when we take God seriously in what he says. And if you heard Tim and I pray periodically, you would find out that one of the things we believe, and we have a hard time fitting into a service, is that what God says is more important than what we say. Okay? So, frankly, what is in, written in numbers, and it may tough, be tough to understand, but it's actually more important than what I have to say. It's more important than any of the pastoral opinions I hold. What God thinks about us is the most important thing that could ever be thought, okay? And what we think about him is the most important thought we're ever going to have. And so when we honor God this way, as we have this morning, with a tough passage, and where is Kelly? You're still here. <laughs> I was kind of checking. I thought when I get up there, I better check if Kelly made it or if she's like, you know, in her car driving down old Schuylkill right now. But uh, thank you, Kelly, because honestly, when we're talking about a passage like this, we are honoring God. It is a worshipful act to read the scriptures. And if you've never thought about it that way, that's one of the most important reasons to read the scripture is because you're taking God seriously. We're gonna, I'm going to pray one more time and then I'm going to walk through this passage again. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that it holds for our lives, and we pray that you'd bless us as we come to understand it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So knowing that I only had a few minutes, and uh, knowing that to rush is to lose the value in something, I wrote cliff notes, okay? You know, there are those yellow books you can buy at Ollie's and other bookstores, and uh, you notice I call Ollie's a bookstore. That's just worth noting. But anyway, Ollie's and other bookstores, you can get these books that say, okay, this is Shakespeare for idiots or something, you know? So I'm going to give you this sermon for, not idiots, but for people who don't have a lot of time. God wants to be close to us, okay? God wants to be close to us. God wants you and me, all of us, to hear him. And God wants us to be able to overcome failure. And failure means sin. When we blow it with God, he wants us to to be able to overcome that. And all those three things are in this passage of scripture, believe it or not. They're in between the lines, they're in strange places, and we're going to go try to mine for them and find them now, okay? Now, here's the thing. When it comes down to it, you and I, we are not people who walk with God very easily. And there's a primary reason for that, according to the scriptures. Uh, James 4 tells us that God opposes the proud and he exalts or gives grace to the humble. Different passages say different things about this, but God lifts up people who are willing to be dependent on him. And on one hand, we generally walk in this kind of independent way through life where we think we don't need anything other than what we have. Or sometimes we get so absolutely needy because we are absolutely irresponsible, right? On this side of the equation, we kind of continuously ask God to forgive us, continuously ask for people to help us, continuously ask for things to kind of be fixed in our lives that we haven't taken responsibility for, and they're broken. On this end, we have all this stuff where we say, hey, you know, listen, uh, I don't need you, and I don't need you, and I don't need you, and I don't need you. I don't need any of you. All I have is what I need, and all I need is what I have, and this is me. I'm independent. But to understand God, we have to come in a posture of dependence. To know God is to know that we need him. And across the scriptures, the Bible continues to make this point over and over again. It is our basic failure as a human race that we don't believe we need him or we want him in all the wrong ways, but we don't come to him with the appropriate dependence. There's some reasons for that, especially in our culture. Raise your hand if you got here in a car, okay? 
I'm looking for somebody. Did anybody want to admit they didn't get here in a car? Anybody walk? Okay, Prashant. And that's not because Prashant doesn't have a car. It's because he lives so close, it'd be ridiculous to drive it, right? Fair enough, okay. We all have cars, right? But do you know that across this world, there's just under 1 billion cars, 1 billion people who have cars? There's 6 billion plus people, and only 1 billion of them have a vehicle. And yet you got here this morning in a car. Fascinating. That means that you are not as needy as a whole lot of people. I'm holding in my hand, this is three bucks. How many of you spent $3 yesterday? At least $3, okay? Not just $3, at least. How many of you had your air conditioners on yesterday? Because you spent $3 if you had your air conditioner on. How many of you drove more than 25 miles yesterday? You also spent $3 in gas or more, probably much more. Okay, you get the picture. You, you know that one half of the world lives on less than $2.50 a day. A day. If you spent less than $3 Yesterday, if you spent less, I don't know how that happened. Because honestly, we each spend more money than that each day of our lives. Fascinating, isn't it? The world is made up of 6 billion people. 3 billion of them spend less than I'm holding in my hand right now every day. That's all they have. Some of them have much less than that. Okay, raise your hand. This is your last, your last test question. Raise your hand if you have another shirt, okay? Notice the phrasing. That means you have one other shirt than the one that's on your back. You have another shirt. You have, some of you have both hands up. That means you have a closet full of them, right? I've given more, I've given more shirts to the Salvation Army than this in the past month. Uh, you know, about a third of the world doesn't have another shirt, okay? When we come to God and we need this needy posture, we need to understand that we are dependent on him. When we have to admit that we need him, we have a hard time doing that. And why? Because we're very accustomed to having what we need. When we don't have to pray for bread, when we don't have to pray for, for money, when we don't have to pray for a new car, we just kind of have those things. It might be credit, but we have access in some way, shape, or form to those, to those things that we need. Fascinating, huh? I sat at a dinner a few years ago across from a, a, a Ugandan pastor, and, across, and he was there to share with us what his ministry was like in Uganda. And he started to share with me. He said, listen, uh, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you pr- probably pray that line, uh, give us today our daily bread. And I said, yes, I do. I pray that regularly. It's one of the prayers that I think we base all other prayers on. He says, so what do you mean? I said, well, Jesus is the bread of life, you know? I mean, you get the bread of life. We need Jesus every day of our lives. And I went into this really spiritual explanation. I listened to myself, and I got done, and I said, wow, I sound really good. You know, that's true. We do need Jesus every day. And I thought, I don't know if he has goosebumps, but he probably should. And he looked at me, and he said, you know, I grew up in Uganda, and I'm a pastor in Uganda, and my kids are growing up in Uganda. And he said, when I pray that prayer, I mean it. He said, I don't mean all that other stuff. I just mean bread. He said, there's so many people who have died of HIV AIDS in our community that I have two kids living with us right now. And I'm here trying to to gain resources from the United States and people and churches over here because my church doesn't have enough over there. And my wife is trying to make ends meet. And she's caring for these two orphan kids who have lost their families to HIV AIDS. And when we pray that prayer, frankly, we gather every night and pray it with our kids. And we hold hands and we pray it and we trust God because honestly, by tomorrow, we don't know if we'll have any bread in the house. And he says, what's amazing is God still provides. He is an amazing God and he still does this. And then he looked at me and said, you know, you're really, really poor. And I thought, what what do you mean? I'm really poor. You're talking about you need bread. And he says, no, you're really poor because you don't know what it's like to be able to trust God that way. 
You don't know what it's like to be able to depend on God and to see him day after day come through and provide for our church and our family. He said sometimes it provides, he provides through people just like you. But what's amazing is I can trace the fact that he continues to do this amazing job of providing for my family. God is a God who must be depended on. And if he's not depended on by us, then he isn't God in our lives. We haven't put him in the appropriate place and he doesn't turn out to be the person whom we need him to be. We can kind of sit over there and go, well, independently, we need God on Sundays. We need to be religious in some way, but we don't really need God in the very center of our lives. That's not what we need. We just need him off to the side. But then he'll never actually be what we need the most. On this end, we could be people who are so needy, we just constantly need God. And we cry out to him, we ask him for this, that, and the other thing, but we actually haven't submitted to his will. We haven't listened to his plan for our lives. We haven't taken God very seriously on that end. And so there's this danger that we get caught in between these two ends and we never get to the middle where we realize that God must be depended on. God must be served. God must be trusted. He is the leader. We are the followers. So let me jump into Numbers and tell you what that has to do with with the book of Numbers. Numbers is a book that took place, got written about 3,400 years ago. Jesus was 2,000 years back. That means we're going back even further, 1,400 years previous to that. And when God comes to the children of Israel, these people who are enslaved to the Egyptians, he says, you're going to be my people. I've promised this for a long time, but I'm going to take you out from slavery and I'm going to get you free of this enslavement. He does this through 10 plagues and then he leads them through the Red Sea. If you've heard the story, if you've seen the movie, you can picture Charlton Heston at this point if you want. He goes through the Red Sea on dry land. That's Charlton Heston. It wasn't really the Red Sea, by the way. That was just a set in Hollywood. But he goes through the Red Sea and they get to the other side and they're in the desert. And this thing hits the Israelites, this realization when they get to the desert that they didn't realize before. And that's that on the other side of the Red Sea, it really is a desert. It's sand, and it's rocks, and it's not a lot of food, and it's not a lot of water. And they get out in the middle of that desert, and they they realize that they need something. And immediately they start to complain, gripe, get irritated, get angry, get frustrated, do all of these different things. They talk amongst themselves, but what they never do is they never ask God. They never ask God. And God comes to them through Moses, and there's a conversation that starts, and he says, listen, you've got to depend on me. And so they start to engage in this process of realizing that God wants to provide for them. He provides bread, and there's this manna on the ground. Manna in Hebrew means, what is it? And it's bread that's literally just found on the ground in the morning. They they get tired of just eating bread, and they cry out, and they get meat. And it's from the quail that fly in every evening. And repeatedly, they run out of water. And you can read the story in the Exodus. But God miraculously provides water over and over again, making the point that on Father's Day of all days, he is the great father. And he loves his children. And he wants to care for them. And if they will ask him, he will provide for them. They get through all of this stuff. And they go through this, this experience of learning how to depend on God. If you go across the scriptures, this isn't the only time when people were led into the wilderness to learn to depend on God. People like Jesus, John the Baptist, Moses, Elijah, all spent significant time out in this wilderness apart from their support network, apart from the structures that helped them to survive, and they had to depend on God. For us to be people who walk with God as he intended, we have to be people who learn to depend on him in faith. Now, Numbers 5, let me read it for you, just the first few verses. This is, this is Numbers 5. It says, The Lord said to Moses, 
I'm just looking at Kelly one more time. The Lord said to Moses, command the Israelites to send away from the camp anyone who has a defiling skin disease or a discharge of any kind or who is ceremonially unclean because of a dead body. Send away male and female alike. Send them outside the camp so they will not defile their camp. Where, notice the underlined, where I dwell among them. You know, when God gets the children of Israel, these people he's going to call his people for the rest of their lives, when he gets them out into the wilderness, there's this moment when he gives them the final great word that he's going to give them about their lives. It's called the Ten Commandments. You can find it in Exodus 20. But do you know what happens the minute he gives them the Ten Commandments? What's the next story? I hear whisperings, but I don't hear what they are. The golden calf. The, the second of the Ten Commandments says, make no graven images. And in fact, what they do right then is go out and make a graven image. Moses goes up in the, in the hill to talk with God, and he's not there. And so the people get ashamed. The literal Bible reading says they're ashamed that God has left them, and they get worried about it. And so they go up, and they, they create this golden calf, and they start to worship it. It creates this experience, this relationship breakdown between God and the people, and it is terrible. Have you ever been in a house where there's a relational tension, where there's people who aren't getting along, where they don't actually live as husband and wife or siblings or whatever the relationship is? I grew up with some friends, and I remember their parents. They had two televisions with two, two uh, remote controls. And they, every day when I'd come over to see my friend after, after school or whatever it might be, his dad would be in one room, his mom in the other, and they'd be watching two sets of televisions, okay? And they'd be watching two different shows. And you, you kind of got the feeling that they never talked. God's response to the people of Israel deciding to sin like this and create a golden calf is he says, I've been replaced. That's fine. I'm moving outside the camp. Exodus 33 records this for us. It tells us that God moved his temple from the very middle of the camp. It was actually outside the camp in Exodus. And there was this in-house divorce where God didn't actually leave the people and the people didn't leave God, but they had this problem getting along with God and they had decided not to submit to God. And he says, listen, if I'm going to be in the midst of you, you're either going to die if you fail this way, which is a very great possibility with this holy of a God, or I'm going to pull myself away from you. And they walk through this healing process. And God says, listen, you need to follow me. And once again, you need to get rid of this golden calf and you need to start to do the right things the right way. And I'm going to start to instruct you and I'm going to instruct you on some pretty small details. For instance, if anybody has a skin disease or if anybody has a discharge, if anybody has hurtness in their life, damage in their, in their being, they need to get outside the camp. Because if I'm going to live in the midst of you, you're going to learn how to take care of each other. He doesn't even tell them why this is, but can you imagine what a skin disease would do in a camp of a million and a half people in just a few acres? It could wipe out a 1,000 or 2,000 or more in just a few days. And so what he did was he made these laws and told them, listen, if you are one of those people who has a problem, temporarily remove yourself from the community so I can live amongst you, so I can give you, so I can give you my presence. Now, here's the question for us. Do we want God to live amongst us, Okay. Do we want God to live so closely in the life of our church and in the lives of, our, of each one of us that we make our lives centered around who he is? And when he starts to share with us how he wants our lives to live, when he w- starts to communicate with us that we take him so seriously that he can feel comfortable in our lives. How do you think Jesus feels in your life today? As, he's wa- as you're walking around Tuesday at 3, what is it that he's watching? 
This passage of Scripture asks us to believe that God wants to live amongst them. And in contrast to the Exodus where God is outside the camp, God has moved inside the camp, but then he says, but you're going to live life my way if I do this. It's my way or the highway. And this is the way of God. We don't like it. We like our own way. We like to be independent or we like to be needy on this end. But to sit there and look at God and to take him seriously is really difficult. Let me read for you a, a new passage in the New Testament that talks about this. This is John fifteen five. Jesus gave this in the midst of a sermon on the very last night before he was crucified. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, I've looked back across my life and I've seen moments. I can see them in retrospect better than I can see them at the time. But there are moments when I walk in such a neediness of God, I'm, I'm walking in irresponsibility in some area of my life. I realize that I've got things that I haven't taken leadership over and, and control over, and I keep asking God to get me past the crisis. On the other hand, there have been moments when I've walked so independently through my life, I'm not even connected with him. And this word abide in this passage doesn't, doesn't actually describe me. And yet the parts of my life where I look back and I see God actively working and doing great things are the parts when I'm connected. This passage of scripture asks us to believe that without God in the midst of our camp, without God in the midst of our lives, without God being taken seriously in our existence where we live according to his plan for our lives and not our own, well, then we actually can't do anything that is effective for his kingdom. We're either walking according to God's plan and he is a part of our lives and he is the close, we have this closeness with him or else we aren't doing anything that actually is according to what his plan is for our lives. Isn't that scary? And so Numbers asks us to believe and reassess over and over again. Are we taking God seriously? Is he in the midst of our lives? Or have we kind of kicked him out the camp? Have we decided to have kind of a set of idols in our lives? Have we put things higher on the food chain of our existence than God? Have we decided we would rather do our life our own way? We would rather value our finances or our job or whatever it might be over God. We have to ask ourselves this, uh, this question. It's very serious because the option is that apart from me, you can do nothing. There's every possibility that people who are believers in Jesus walk apart from Jesus, okay? I'm not telling you you're not going to heaven. I'm not telling you that you aren't going to have God's plan eventually worked out in your life, but I'm telling you that right now you're not a part of God's plan and what he wants to do in your existence and in your workplace and in your family today. That is very possible and very frightening. That's not the only question. Let me keep reading. We're going to read that same passage again. That's not it. Do we care what God says? This is the same passage. Kelly's going to be jealous because she had to read 31 verses, and I just keep going over the same three. Do you notice that? When you're preaching, you get to cheat on this stuff. When you're reading, it's just not fair. Okay, I'm going to begin reading, and I'm going to stop very early. It says, the Lord said, the Lord said, If you have your Bible open, look at Numbers 5, 5. Anybody got their Bible open? Just real quick. What does Numbers 5, 5 say? The Lord said to Moses, look at Numbers 5, 11. The Lord said to Moses, look at Numbers 6, 1. The Lord said to Moses. Do you notice this? The Lord's talking a whole lot, isn't he? 
It's very fascinating. I'm only going to read that portion of this passage again. The Lord said, I still remember the day in Hebrew class in seminary when my professor, I'm not even going to tell you the Hebrew, but my professor came in with this, ream. it looked like that old computer notebook paper. Remember that stuff? You bought it in like packs like this. And he brought it in and he set it down in the table in front of me. And he said, okay, all of you guys got it. And there's only like six people in the class. Not everybody likes Hebrew, you know, go figure. And, and, and he said, you got to take these packets of information. And they were like this thick. I said, what's this? And I looked at it. And in Hebrew, it said, the Lord said, over and over and over again, line after line after line, the Lord said. And then there were these little references and parentheses next to him. He said, this is, the, uh, this is every time in, the fir- in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers that the Bible records these words, the Lord said. He said, if you wonder why you're studying the Bible, if you wonder why you're trying to grow in Christ, let me tell you that this is the reason. The Bible begins with three books, and those three books recount hundreds of times. Every time they change the subject or there's a new story in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, every time they begin with this phrase, the Lord said. Why would that be? One of the ways we try to communicate and educate is by repetition, right? Isn't that right? You still remember the flashcards? One times three is three. One times four is four. One times five is five. I go over these things with my kids. I'm teaching them to memorize. And when God wrote the first five books of the Bible, he used this phrase more often than any other. Why? Because he wanted his people to be able to hear him. We have lost the ability to hear our God. And he wants to communicate with us. Let me keep reading. This is from Mother Teresa. Before you speak, it is necessary for you to listen, for God speaks in the silence of the heart. When's the last time you set aside time to hear God, to let him live in the midst of your camp, to live in the midst of your lives, to reorder your entire existence around this one question? What does God think of my life right now? When's the last time you've scheduled a date with God to ask him that question and journaled the answer, written it down on paper, asked him, This is what the force was that empowered Mother Teresa to make the difference that she did in the world. And frankly, it's the difference maker for every person who believes in Jesus. It's very easy to walk disconnected from Jesus when you don't spend time to him, spend time with him, or spend time listening to what he has to say. Let me move forward again. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. I remember... This is from uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. I remember in first grade, I had this Sunday school teacher, and he was about six foot five, and his hands were just ginormous, you know? He was a, he was a tractor repairman from the local tractor dealership. And this is true. Pete DeVries was his name. He's passed, and he's gone to be with the Lord. But I still remember him, this big, gigantic guy. He never said anything until he meant it. You know, one of those people, when he said it, you did it, because you were afraid if he ever hit you, 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 you wouldn't wake up. Uh, but I remember him saying, well, the Bible tells us to pray, and he did it in this deep bass, pray without ceasing. That's how he said it. And I thought, oh my goodness, pray without stop. How do you, like, I think the prayers in my church last too long as it is. I'm thinking as a first grader, you know. Those prayers go on and on and on. We're praying for everybody's Aunt Matilda who's got a hurt toe. We're praying for all this stuff. What, what, we, prayer has to stop. In fact, I sat in church in first grade and wondered, please stop the prayer. When will it end? I'm tired of this. Can't somebody sing something? You're not laughing as much as I was when I thought of this, but I'll tell you, that's how it went down. Pete DeVries told me this verse, and he taught me that, and he says, listen, you're supposed to pray. Now, what he never told me is that it was supposed to be a two-way conversation. I don't know if he ever even thought about that. 
But what Mother Teresa tells us and what the first three books of the Bible or the first five books of the Bible tell us is that we're supposed to be hearing God talk to us. It's not just talking to him. This isn't just recounting all your requests. It's actually asking him, what do you think of my life, God? Have you been pleased today? Have you been pleased today? The passage goes on and we'll go on. What do do we do when we fail God? Once we start asking God about our lives, let me tell you, you're going to find some things. You are. You are. Okay? If you take this seriously and you start to ask God, you you look across your life, you're going to find things where you fail God. Let me read for you. The high priest carries the blood. I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong passage. There. We're in the right passage. I skipped ahead too fast. Yeah, Kelly's giving me the nod. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way, and then it says this line, and so is unfaithful to the Lord. Anybody, don't raise your hand, please, okay? Has anybody wronged another human being this week? Has your heart been twisted within you as you've looked on some face or thought about some name? Have you been angry with somebody? Have you cut somebody off in traffic? Have you done any number of things that you know are in your heart to do where you look at another person and you don't think God loves them as much as he actually does? This passage asks us to believe that whenever we look at another human being, we either love them like God does or we're not loving them appropriately. Isn't that scary? It's unfaithfulness to the Lord God if we are sinning against another person in our life. When we start to spend time with God, when we put him in the middle of our camp, one of the things that shows up is we see ourselves for who we are. And when we see ourselves for who we are, we get humble or we get out. Honestly, there are only two options. We either get humble and we go to that camp and we say, listen, God, please forgive me, or we have to exit because we're so frightened because God is that big. Any man or woman who wrongs another in any way and so is unfaithful to the Lord is guilty and must confess the sin they have committed. And it goes on and it will tell us how to deal with that sin. 1 John 1, 9 tells us this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. In the Greek, the word confess literally means to agree with God. That's all it means. Wouldn't that be interesting? If God said, this is what you've done, and you said, yes, you know, I'm very, very intimately acquainted with what actually happens in the human psyche when we, we say these things. I tell my kids this stuff all the time. You've done wrong. And they say, no, I haven't. You don't know. I didn't hit him. I just kind of pushed him with my arm like this, you know. Or I've just kind of slammed into him with my hip like that. But that's not really hitting anybody. It's not actually sin. It's not wrong. It's not against the rules. That's how we are with God, right? He looks at us, he looks inside us, and he says, listen, if you would give that up, your life would be so blessed. Your life would be so fulfilled. You would have such a better existence, but you want to hang on to it. And we sit and we argue with God for this stuff. We hang on to it thinking, this is mine. I'm independent. I don't need you, God. This is over here. This is mine. You can take all the rest of me, but this is my thing. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. This is kind of a strange passage. It's from one of the last books in the New Testament. And it goes all the way back to Leviticus and Numbers and talking about the very passage we're talking about today. It says the high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. That's the Old Testament. 
When one of these sins happened, you'd go to the priest and you'd pay him with this sin offering and he would make restitution for what you've done wrong. He would make atonement for it. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. Once this stuff has been offered to God, it's taken outside the camp. But then it says this line. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go out to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. So if only perfect people are allowed in the city of God, this metaphorical city, only purified people, right people are allowed in the camp, are you allowed in the camp? Where would you be today? Not inside, right? I wouldn't either. Okay, when it comes right down to it, our failures preclude the possibility for us to live in the presence of God. The Old Testament tells us this very, very clearly, but then it tells us here in Hebrews, and so Jesus also suffered where? Outside the city. Interesting, isn't it? So where was Josh Bightwork when Jesus found him? Outside the city. Jesus had to exit the city gates like a bad sacrifice, like a used-up piece of animal to go find Josh Whitework. That's where he found me. That's where he finds everyone. Because that's where we live, because we're a mess. Because we have sinned. Because we have failed. 1 John tells us that, or I'm sorry, Numbers 5 tells us that we are not faithful with God or faithful to God when we hurt another human being. But Hebrews tells us that God's faithfulness and 1 John tells us that God's faithfulness are so great that they chase us wherever our unfaithfulness takes us. Wherever we end up sinning, God's faithfulness ends up blessing. Isn't that an amazing thought? He chases us around trying to find a way for us to finally get dependent, confess our sin, and accept his forgiveness for our failures. What an amazing God we have. I'm going to switch the slide and we're going to read this last passage and then we're going to go home. This is a quote from John Piper. It says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, and with all the friends you ever had on earth, and all the food you ever liked, and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted, and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Jesus Christ was not there? Would you be satisfied with a life where God gave you everything you ever wanted and you didn't have to be dependent on him, but he wasn't actually a part of your life? Are you in love with God or the stuff that he brings you? Are you willing to listen to him and hear God's plan for your life because you love him or because you just want to avoid all this failure on the other side? The deep call of God on our lives is that we grow dependent on him, not just on a one-time experience basis, but on this eternal, everyday, constant basis where we realize the central question of our lives is, is Jesus the most important for us? Is Jesus the most important person today? If you've wronged somebody, and you have, you're outside the camp. And if you're outside the camp, you're probably having trouble hearing God's voice. And if you're not hearing God's voice, the only way back in is to confess your sin. And to just admit it and say, listen, your gift is free. I just am too arrogant to take it most days. Let me just drop it on you, Jesus. I'm sorry. I have blown it again. Let me ask you to forgive me. And he does. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from each little bit of it. Amazing, isn't it?